About 30 minutes from now, we're going to sing another song. You'll ask, be asked to stand and sing number 490. It is well with my soul. I'm warning you about that because it's my hope that everyone here can sing that song wholeheartedly 30 minutes from now. It's a great song. Three verses talk about three different aspects of life. The first one talks about our physical life. The songwriter said, uh, when peace like a river attendeth my way, or when sorrows like sea billows roll, it's well with my soul. Whatever happens in life, whatever the circumstances are, it's well with me. Second verse talks about our spiritual condition. The songwriter says, it's well with my soul because my sins, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sins, not in part, but the whole, have been nailed to the cross, and I bear them no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. And the third verse talks about our eternal condition. It says, there will come a day when the faith will be sight. There will come a day when the clouds will be rolled back like a scroll. And the trumpet's going to sound. And the Lord shall descend. And he says, even so, it's well with my soul. So about half hour from now, I want us all to be able to sing that wholeheartedly, that physically and spiritually and eternally, it's well. I'm going to spend the next 30 minutes seeing what the Bible says about truly making it well with your soul. How are we sure of that? How can we sing that song? A great song can make you think, and a great story can change lives. The story of Saul, the conversion of Saul, it's found in three different places in the Bible. Some of you that were in adult classes studied Acts chapter 9 this morning. Uh, Saul was a Hebrew. He persecuted Christ. He became the greatest Christian that ever lived. And his story is found in three different places. Acts 9 is Luke's history, just a summary of it. Acts 22 is Saul's own personal account of it. To the Hebrews. And Acts 26 is his account of it to the Roman governors. It's a great story. It's told three times. Uh, every fact that I give you this morning is going to come from either one of those chapters or the mentions that I also put on your handout because Saul, Paul refers to it a lot of times in his writings. And it's all in there. I've just rearranged it to put into a coherent story, I hope. The Apostle Paul, formerly Saul, said, I was the chief sinner. I was the foremost sinner of all times. But I was saved for an example. Saved to be an example. Well, there's power in this story then. There's an example there. Uh, this story has changed lives. It's turned atheists into Christians. It's turned lost people into saved people. It's people turned people who were spiritually blinded 
It's opened their eyes. That's a great story. Let me tell you just about one person that it changed. George Littleton lived back in the 1700s. Uh, he was a member of Parliament. He was, well, he was a bigwig, I guess. He, he had all sorts of education. And he lived in a time of skepticism and cynicism and doubt about this book. All of the educated people criticized this book, said it wasn't true, said Christianity was false. And George Littleton and his good friend Gilbert West, they were nominal Christians. They'd been raised that way. But they listened to all of their peers. They listened to all this high scholarly arguments. And they thought, well, Christianity is fake. So let's prove it wrong. They were both so educated, they said, this is the way to do it. We'll research it and prove it wrong. Gilbert West said, I'll study the resurrection of Christ. If I can prove that wrong, then Christianity will fall. George Littleton said, I'll study the conversion of Saul, because that's such a fantastic story. There had to be an earthly reason it happened if Christianity falls, so I'll study that. They went away, they did their research separately. Many months later, they came back together and told each other, I'm a committed Christian. Not only I couldn't prove that story wrong, it's got to be true. Christianity has to be what it says it is. And George Littleton wrote a book about it, Observations of the Conversion of St. Paul, uh, which is still in print today, I think. Uh, This story has the power to change people. And that's why we're looking at it in some detail today. Let's look at the story of St. Paul. Uh, Saul, and I'll call him Saul or Paul because he used both names in his life, uh, he wrote about half the New Testament books. He became a great Christian. But the first time we meet him, he is cheering on a mob at the murder of a Christian. He attended the murder, the assassination, the martyrdom of Stephen. And he says, I consented to it. I agreed with it. And then he began to persecute all of the church. And then we read in Acts 9 and the story again in 22 and 26 of his life change on the road to Damascus. That's where it began. So here's his story. He was a Hebrew. He was a Greek in some way. His father was probably of Greek citizenship. He lived in Tarsus, so he was a Roman citizen. So he was a Hebrew, Greek, and Roman all at once. He moved to Jerusalem to go to school with Gamaliel, who was the rabbi. You didn't get any higher than that in Judaism. He studied under Gamaliel. He said, I was advanced beyond anybody my age. He was a Bible scholar prodigy. He went to the best Bible school, and he was so advanced over everybody else that he knew it. He was becoming famous in Judaism. He said, I lived a righteous life. He said, I was a Hebrew of Hebrews. I was a Pharisee. That's how I lived. I lived to keep the law. In fact, he said, as far as righteousness... Based on the law, I wouldn't get ready for this. As far as righteousness based on the law, I was faultless. 
That's quite a claim. He was completely righteous. He was so zealous about his faith, about protecting Judaism, about the things that he had been taught. He said, I was so extremely zealous for the faith of my fathers that I persecuted the church violently and tried to destroy it. He believed that Christianity was false because he had been taught what to look for in the Messiah, and Jesus didn't fit that picture. So he was extremely zealous. And on top of all that, he was extremely, absolutely sincere. When he was on trial before the Sanhedrin in chapter 23, he said, it says he looked straight at them and said, I have fulfilled my duty to God in all good conscience to this day. Everything I've done, I, I really thought I ought to do that. I really thought that's what God wanted. That's who he was. And he, because of that, he persecuted Christ followers. If you were in class this morning, you probably saw how hard he worked at that. He went into synagogues. He looked for people who believed in Christ. He drugged them out, both men and women. He hauled them off to jail, and when they voted whether they should have the death penalty or not, he voted yes, killed them. He was so zealous that he even, when he heard there was a church in Damascus, 140 miles away from Jerusalem, he went after them. He went looking for Christians to stamp out this heresy. Uh, To fully understand this persecution that he accomplished, You have to understand how thoroughly he knew the Bible and how thoroughly he had been trained and how he had been raised to believe completely what his family told him, what his teachers told him, what his peers believed. That's why you could say, I'm absolutely sincere. I had a good conscience about all this. He was so convinced that he did all that to the church of God. He heard there were a group of Christians in Damascus, so he headed off to Damascus. On the road, something happened. First, a light, brighter than the noonday sun, knocked him to the ground. He knew something was going on. Then he heard a voice. When he heard the voice, he said, who are you? He didn't know who he was. Uh, he knew it was in, who it was in charge, whoever it was. So he called him Lord. He said, who are you, Lord? And the answer that came back, if he wasn't already on his knees, surely knocked him to his knees. The voice said, I am Jesus. I'm Jesus who you've been persecuting. Do you understand how convinced he was a moment before that Jesus was a charlatan? And in that moment, Jesus said, I'm the Lord, and you've been persecuting me. That's who I am. And that affected Saul so much that he said, what do I do? It must have gone through his mind when he was looking to heaven. And it says that he saw Jesus somehow. 
I don't know when he was blinded, but it says he saw Jesus. Jesus appeared to him. And it must have gone through his mind that here I am on the road looking into heaven, and I'm seeing Jesus and Stephen, who I just consented to his death. Before he died, he looked up into heaven, and he said, I see Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And now Saul saw the same thing. He said, what do I do? What do you want me to do? Jesus said, go into Damascus, and it'll be told you what to do. In Damascus, he fasted for three days. He didn't eat or drink anything for three days. He prayed. I imagine every waking minute, doesn't say constantly, but he prayed for three days. And then he was miraculously healed. He was blind physically, and I think it was symbolic of his spiritual blindness, too. Uh, so he didn't even drink. He prayed all the time. It, it was a sidetrack, but wouldn't it be fun to know what he prayed about? For three days, I think he probably prayed about, how could I be so hard-headed? How could I have done what I did? How could I have believed things that were so clear and I was wrong? Do you think he prayed about all the good people that he had put to death? I'm sure he had a lot on his heart and in those prayers. And then the preacher came, named Ananias, came to him and he said, I've come to heal you. Jesus sent me to you. He took away his blindness and he could see again. And then Ananias explained... Whatever Saul didn't know. I imagine Saul knew most of it. He'd been chasing Christians. You think he didn't know their doctrine? He went seeking them out. I think he knew exactly what they taught. So I think he knew most of the gospel story, but maybe Ananias explained it to him fuller. And however familiar with him with he was, he heard what he needed to do. Now, let's stop there just a moment. I want you to think for just a minute about what all we've heard about Saul. Saul Saul knew the Scriptures, frontwards and backwards. He was a moral man. He lived a faultless moral life. He was zealous. He was committed. He never missed a synagogue assembly. He never missed a Sabbath service. He was totally sincere. He fasted. He prayed. He even received a miraculous healing. Now, those seven things that I just mentioned, what's interesting about them is that all seven of those things are reasons that you can hear people give for why they are right with Christ. All seven of those things are things that people will claim uh, if you ask them. Are you going to heaven? Are you saved? Well, of course. And they'll give you an answer, one of those seven things. So we need to keep reading. Acts 22 and verse 16, the preacher, after all of that, the preacher said, why do you wait? Arise. Be baptized. 
Wash away your sins. Now, I told you this story, a great story has a lot of truth in it. And here's a great truth. After all of that, after everything that we just talked about, Saul still had a sin problem. He was still guilty of his sins. In spite of all those good things that we just talked about. And what that tells us, if we pay attention, if we look at the Scripture with open eyes, what that tells us is that Bible knowledge cannot get rid of sins. Living a good moral life, even a faultless moral life, cannot get rid of sins. Being extremely zealous, extremely committed, never missing a service, if you will, can't get rid of sins. Fasting for three days or three months can't get rid of sins. Praying for three days, solid. Some people say, I I know I'm saved because I prayed through. Praying can't get rid of sins. Being completely sincere can't get rid of sins. Having miraculous things happen in your life can't get rid of sins. All of those things happened. Only the blood of Jesus washes away sins. That's what the Bible tells us. And Jesus said that happens at baptism. He told the preacher to go to him. The preacher said, what you need to do, and I don't know why you're waiting, what you need to do is be baptized and that will wash away your sins. Now, Saul, he he, he had seven good arguments, didn't he? He could argue with Ananias. Now, hold it. You want me to be baptized? I know the Bible frontwards and backwards. I've lived a completely good moral life. I'm zealous for my faith. I'm totally sincere. I've been fasting and praying. God has healed me. But Saul simply arose and was baptized. That's when his sins were forgiven. He went on to be the greatest Christian in the world, perhaps, but... We're going to stop the story there for right now and talk about Paul the Apostle some other time, maybe. Now, let's just review a little bit and kind of bring this to a close about what we've talked about. Some of you, or most of you know, if you're visiting, you don't. We have a TV program at Northside. We've been on TV for 32 years plus. We answer people's questions. And a lot of those questions are about baptism. A lot of questions about baptism. And this story answers a lot of those questions. Now, if you watch our show, if you record it and watch it when you get home or whatever, you know that we consistently show what the Bible teaches about baptism. We answer almost every question with a scripture on the screen that says, here's what the Bible says. We're pretty straight up about it. Uh, We talk about, we answer questions and tell people, Who should be baptized? Uh, Adults, people that are old enough to understand, believe, repent, confess. Not infants, not little children. They don't understand. It's for adults, for responsible people that understand. Uh, We say baptism is 
immersion. That's what the word means. I know people say a lot of other things, but it doesn't mean sprinkling. It doesn't mean pouring. It's what the word means, and it's what pictured in baptism, being united in his death, burial, and resurrection. And we tell people that the purpose of baptism is forgiveness of sins. Now, lots of other things happen at baptism. We'll talk about those in a moment. But it's for forgiveness of sin. It's not to join a church. It's not to be an outward sign of an inward faith. It's for forgiveness of sins. We tell people that it is necessary for salvation because it is when we receive forgiveness. It's when we obey. That's what the Bible calls it. Now, we say all that and we get lots of arguments. We get all variations of those seven arguments I already mentioned And I shouldn't call it arguing because I believe that most of the people that call in or write in or email are sincere. They sincerely believe that we got it wrong. I believe that they are mostly zealous for the traditions of their fathers. They sincerely believe what they've been taught. They believe what the church they were raised in or the pastor they were raised with or their mother or father or grandmother, whatever they told them, they sincerely believe that. And so they contact us and say, baptism's not necessary for salvation. You say, by faith only. Can't be baptism. They contact us and tell us sprinkling is okay. Sprinkling will work. They contact us and say, I was baptized as an infant. I don't need to be baptized again. They contact us and say, I, I know a person that lives a good life. you telling me he needs to be baptized? I, I know people who read the Bible daily, who pray regularly. I know people who have seen God's hand working in their life. you telling me they need to be baptized? I'm Because of all these things, I'm sure I'm okay with God. And some of them never question it. Some of them won't let the Scripture answer. But some of them react like Saul. That's what the Bible says. And that's what I'll do. I'm going to close with sharing a letter with you. Uh, a long, long letter. It was an email, actually, but printed out single... Space, small font, it's three pages, solid, long. One of our viewers wrote this, and i got to admit, he's a great writer. Very interesting to read and very well written. And what he says is, I've been watching the program, and you say, I need to be baptized. He said, let me tell you my story. He said, I'm writing of my personal experience to ask you if it's possible that I don't need baptism because of what's occurred to me. And here's his story. He talks about his childhood. He said, I always felt drawn to God as a child. I spent many hours reading my child's Bible and practiced prayer and felt like God and guardian angels were constantly with me. 
And then he talks about growing up and getting in with the wrong crowd and doing the wrong things and, and falling into a, a life of alcoholism and drugs and all kinds of things. But he began going to AA and he began to learn things. And one night, he had a vision. Ceiling began to glow pure white bright light, and I felt the presence of his Holy Spirit. He saw hands coming from a large white robe. Twenty-six minutes his vision lasted. As a result of my experience, the obsession for alcohol was completely removed. So he comes to his question and he says, Now, John the Baptist wasn't baptized. He received an anointing. So, since I've already been anointed by the Holy Spirit or by Christ, why do I need to do anything else? He says a public ceremony wouldn't validate that which God himself has already done. So he closes and said, do you believe me in need of baptism by man in violation of my belief and faith that I received it already directly from God and the Holy Spirit? It's an interesting question, an interesting story. And how I responded to that question was, I said, if you've been watching the programs, you know what we teach about baptism. And I gave him a brief summary, put it on your handout so you can see most of the scriptures. There's a lot more there. But I told him, here's what happens at baptism. Uh, you can say you don't need it for lots of reasons and lots of arguments. But number one, Jesus commanded Jesus said, if you want to be saved, you'll believe and be baptized. So Jesus commanded it, but if you want to go further in that, just read the New Testament and see what happens at baptism. Now, I know some people accuse us of believing that baptism is water regeneration, that there's something magical about the water and dipping a person somehow cleans them of sin. That's not right. Even the Bible says, no, it's not about that. It's about your conscience. It's about obeying God. But if you read and see what happens at baptism, and I put a lot of them on the list, the, the biggest one is that's how we get into Christ. And in Christ, that's where all the good stuff is. That's where salvation is. Only in Christ. There's no other way. That's where redemption is. That's where every spiritual blessing is. That's where we become a new creation is in Christ. When Christ comes back, when that trump resounds and the Lord descends, He's coming only for those who are in Him. Being in Christ is essential. And that happens at baptism. We are forgiven of our sins at baptism. We receive the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. That's where we are united 
with his death, burial, and resurrection. Now, only the blood of Jesus saves us. I already told you that. But where do we come in contact with it? Not through fasting or prayer or doing good works or feeling sincere. We come in contact with it in the waters of baptism. That's what the Bible says. All of us who have been baptized, Paul said in Romans 6, have been united with him in his death. That's when it happens. It's when we become children of God. And we could go on and on about what happens at baptism. But I gave him a brief summary of that. And then I said this, the best way I know to answer your question about whether you need baptism or not is to ask you to read a story in the Bible. It's in Acts chapter 9 and Acts chapter 22. You read that story and you will notice that this fellow named Saul saw a great light. Jesus appeared to him. He fasted. He prayed. He confessed Jesus as Lord. He received a divine healing in his life. And after all of that, the preacher came to him and said, Now what are you waiting for? you got a sin problem. Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins. And my last sentence was, I can only conclude that baptism is the will of God. No matter what, signs or visions, he may have granted to someone else. May God bless you in your study. Well, I may have said something this morning that made you uncomfortable. I may have said something that made you wonder, made you doubt. Maybe doubt something that you've always been confident of. I just want to remind you of giving you nothing but Scripture this morning. That's all I've told you. If something is bothering your heart right now, it's the power of the Word, not what I said. Now, I hope I said it in a loving way. I said it in an effort to prepare you to sing this song. It is well with my soul. A great song. But if you doubt after hearing the story of Saul, that your sins have been nailed to the cross. If you doubt that it's really going to be well when the trump sounds and the Lord descends, then I'll ask you the same question the preacher asked. Why do you wait? Why do you wait? You know what to do now to make it right. Let's stand and sing this great song wholeheartedly. <laughs>